0: What I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. John Amici is an organisational psychologist, New York Times bestselling author, executive coach and the chief executive of APS Limited, an organisation specialising in creating high performance workplace cultures. In addition to being a board advisor for several FTSE 100 organisations, he is the non-executive director of the NHS Trust and was also the first Briton to have a career in the MBA. John is a chartered scientist, a chartered fellow of the CIPD and a fellow of the Royal Society for Public Health and in 2011 was awarded an OBE. Most importantly. He's a patron of Humanists UK. Thank you, John Mechie, for joining us on What I Believe. Thank you. I thought we'd start with a concept that's obviously very important to you. Um, it's the theme of your latest book, and that's leadership. Why is it that you've dedicated so much of your time recently to thinking about, writing about, and talking about this idea leadership?
1: Because the paucity of leadership is leading to death. It's it's no longer just one of those things where people love to talk about good to great. But this is no longer a case where simply people's lives will be enhanced if leadership exists. That is also true. But we are currently in the midst of a global pandemic. We're in the midst of of the rise of fascism and nationalism. And people are dying because of that. Decisions are being made as such consequence on a global, uh, national, local level that are having consequences that lead to death. That's what leadership is supposed to do. At the very least, it's supposed to stop death.
0: So what do you attribute the, the failure of leadership to or the lack of leadership? Which, which is it? I'm not
1: sure. Is it a failure? or a, Is it bad leadership or no leadership? I, I don't know that there's a subs- the, I think there might be a case for bad leadership is worse than no leadership. At right. least when there's no leadership, one would expect a set of negative outcomes to follow from that. When you have people who are literally named leaders of entire organizations, charities, countries, one would expect better. What do you put it down to? Two, this is one of those things where I want to go into a deep diatribe about this, but I think the problem is that in my book, I talk about there being nuance to this, and there is nuance. So take this with a pinch of the nuance salt. When I say It is because leadership is effortful and the rewards are long-term, not tomorrow. And people are tuned, and it isn't anything to do with bloody social media or or technology. It's just human beings are lazy, and we are tuned to do the thing that gains us the greatest personal gratification with the least possible effort. And if one can tussle one's hair and spout a Latin phrase, and become elected, that is more substantive and certainly simpler for that individual than to really think about complex answers to problems that are multidimensional that will mean that the people around you will challenge you more. So it's as much about
0: the motivations of people who are taking on leadership positions as it is about our low expectations of them, is it? Is it more about their motivations? I mean, <laughs> is, is your idea that, um, it, well, let's if you think about it, how would you solve this problem, I suppose, is the question that might reveal your views on this. How would you solve the problem? Would you solve the problem by expecting people who are leaders to be better, or would you solve
1: the problem by trying to increase the expectations of other people of their leaders? I don't think you can tell a, a jaded population whose experience has been driven by poor leadership that they have to, in order to get better leadership, suspend their disbelief of what they have seen and experienced and wish better leadership upon themselves. We are we are not in Peter Pan here. Mm. I think we have to demand better leaders and better leadership. It, and, and Susan Mickey, who's, I think, amazing, she's a psychologist, and I think she's kind of the mother of behavior change. I, I talk about her in the book, actually. She talks about behavior change, whether it be about leadership or anything else, or dieting, is a function of knowledge. It's a function of capability, skills, and tools. Uh, It's a function of opportunity, being able to utilize those skills and tools in a practical and logistically simple way. And motivation, and that is both kind of the intrinsic forms of that or the more intrinsic forms of that, and structures and frameworks around you that reward and punish based on your behavior that we want to see. That's how you get it. But when you look at that, certainly when you look at politics, the punishment system is broken. We, we see people break the ministerial code in the United Kingdom, and there is no fallout from that. The punishment system is broken. The reward system is broken. You get far more rewards for, I don't know, circumventing the procurement system you know, yeah. than you do. So every stage you look at the skills, they, they're they absent because they are not of value to these individuals. And we don't demand it of them. And the knowledge is openly disputed. Mm. The knowledge part of leadership is openly disputed and people will suggest that what they're doing is leadership despite the fact that it's clearly simply flowery rhetoric. Every stage of that is broken. And we tolerate it because we have people and it's not just about politics but in business whose positions are absolutely um, they're immune it appears from public ire they're immune from certainly i think politics more than business but both Mm. well i was going to ask
0: are there sectors then i mean one of the one of the things that you're saying that you think about this is that the wrong behaviors are rewarded obviously in politics and also now you've moved on to business is there a sector where you can point to leaders and say these these are the right rewards that are the right incentives is there is there any sector in the, that, that you know of in, in the world today where leadership is working in the right way it's being displayed in the right way the motivations are good and the the rewards are uh, correct the incentives are good
1: hmm. <laughs> there must be one one <laughs> yeah I mean I think that the, the, the problem is there are individual organizations that are doing great jobs. So if you look at healthcare, for example, I've been in the NHS for the last eight years as a director, not one of the serious proper people doing real stuff. But in the NHS, I have watched over the last two years as what was a landscape with some very, very fine leadership and a landscape with some less good leadership within the NHS because of the trust system that was set up. Some of them would be well-led and some of them would be less well-led. But I've watched as people have understood in this new era that increasingly we need to have a different kind of distributed leadership, leadership that doesn't just stem from the top six or the board plus the top six, Mm. but actually has to be manifest at each level. So on awards, the people have to lead and it has to be contextual. Um, in, in it, everybody knows the story in the NHS uh, the the apocryphal story of the junior doctor the very junior junior doctor who's doing their first whatever else and a senior nurse will come along and they will say no that's not how you do it this is how you do it you know you want to prescribe this have you thought about this because they not because they're a doctor because they know better that contextual leadership the contextual leadership of, of stepping up and speaking up when incivility happens around you I think we're starting to see more of that in the NHS. But I couldn't possibly say that it's uniform, even across the trust that I am leading, uh, because it's got 28,000 staff spread geographically around the Northwest. And I think that would be a challenge for me to just say that at the top. I do know that it's our focus, and that's a difference. I do know that we will say goodbye to leaders. We will say goodbye to high-ranking people with very desirable skills who refuse to behave in accordance with our values and our behavioral framework. So I will say that is something I know. This doesn't mean we never have grievances. I, I was working on one yesterday, where very clearly somebody has stopped below the level of expectations, but we will deal with that. So to me, there is the, there are groups of people who are really keen, and then there are others who say, you know what, that person's been here forever, they'll never change, so let's just take advantage of their skills until they, either pop their clogs because they, you know, they've got this racy lifestyle or they retire and wander off with a golden parachute. And, and that's the problem. So you're talking there about two things. It seems you're talking about
0: accountability. There's a, there's accountability in this setting, which makes it different from some of the other settings that you've talked about. There's accountability. Um, and then there's also a specific end and a purpose. I mean, it's, you know, the purpose of medicine is clear it's to make, you know, sick people healthier or, or, well, I don't know if that's what what a doctor would say, but that's what, you know, there, there is an aim in, in view. Whereas in contrast with that, maybe what you were saying earlier about politics is that we don't have a shared understanding of what the aim of politics is or should be. Um, and we don't therefore have the means to hold people accountable when they're not performing as we would have them
1: perform. Is that fair? Hmm. I'd probably dispute both of those. I think, A, we we have, surely the job of politicians as singular individuals is to be representatives of their people. That doesn't mean to parrot what everybody in their constituency says, but it does mean to think about what behaviors, what decisions will act to the betterment of the vast majority, the thriving of the majority of their organizations and how for those who are not going to thrive can they enable that facilitated i know that's complex and it's not like a sweet mission statement packaged up but we can tell when people work towards that and work against it we we can tell when in the stuff that people broadly don't care about especially when it comes to things like disability but we could tell when we put in a new system of judgment which is what it was of people with disabilities, that there would be consequences to that. We could absolutely tell that people with disabilities would be terrified at showing what they're able and capable of doing because somebody who doesn't understand them would think that they were a skiver, uh, and think that they should have their benefits taken away. These are, these are easy things to understand the consequences if you look outside of your bubble. In terms of holding them to account, voting is supposed to hold people to account it's supposed to. But two-party systems are always going to be challenging in that because it's hard to tell the difference sometimes.
0: I agree with you when you say that um, it's also my belief that politics should be about the, you know, increasing of human welfare and fulfillment and, and the um, allowing people to thrive and, and and doing the things that will allow them to thrive. But I don't know if that is what everyone thinks politics is. I don't think everyone goes to the ballot box thinking, right, my my job now is to select the politicians who I think are most likely to lead to social welfare and fulfilment and, and
1: thriving. Yep. Agreed. I don't know that they, they all, everybody needs to have a shared understanding of that. I think that the politicians need to have a shared understanding of that. If you elect me because like, you think I'm going to... Um, I mean, I'm unelectable personally, but if you elected me as a, as a as a person because you thought I would make your your tax, bill as a rich person, your tax bill would be low. So I know a number of people. I, I, I'm deeply privileged. I always think it's important that I mention this. Deeply, deeply privileged. I'm talking to you from a penthouse in Covent Garden. I, I am the only black person who lives in Covent Garden, but um, I, I'm deeply privileged, but I would never vote for somebody who came to me and said, if you vote for me, your personal taxes will go down because I know the absolute necessary and indisputable consequences for that with for people less privileged than I, I I look at my tax bill and I would like it to be smaller and at the same time every time I think that I, I my mind gives me a wonderful punch inside of my head I'm surprised that I have nosebleeds because it just makes me it helps me to realize No, no 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 you know what's more important than that how about updating the books In schools in urban areas? How about making sure that rural areas get bloody internet at more than 16 MPS, right? That's more important. All of that is more important. This is not largesse. I'm not like a wonderful person. I'm about to go on holiday to Mykonos and I hope and spend a lot of money sitting on a very lovely beach with my friends. There is enough, you know. There is enough for everybody. There is enough for everybody. As long as we don't think that it's necessary for plutocrats to have their own rocket ships.
0: Hi, this is Andrew, appearing halfway through the podcast to remind you that this is a podcast from Humanist UK, the national charity working on behalf of non religious people to advance free thinking and promote a tolerant society. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to life, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider giving us your support or joining as a member. So these are your political and social values. They're equalitarian, they're about providing for people in the ways that you've described. Where do they come from for you? What, What are the roots of these commitments? Are these things that you grew up with or are these things that you've come to through your life experience or through, through your professional life in psychology how do, how do these things come together for you as your values
1: i, I know that you know being a humanistic psychologist has something to do with it um humanism uh, i went the american school of humanism as we were talking about before we started recording the american school of humanism which is i was in san diego for my postgrad, and there was this huge emphasis on incongruence and congruence. The idea that happiness thriving is about congruence of what is your expectations of a context of an environment and the actual delivered experience. And, and that there's something about that I've really taken to heart because every time you look around, you, you realize that whilst you can't necessarily explain everything by incongruence, you can see incongruence in everything where thriving is absence, where pain is present. And so that's part of it. But it's my mum, really, is the one. Um, that's, that's the, I mean, it's the thing, somebody asked me the other day, what, what's the best thing about the book? And I think the best thing about the book is the idea that a bunch of people are going to get to meet my mum. She, she died years and years and years ago, and yet she is in the pages of this book. Most of this is borrowed. Um, James O'Brien was very kind when he did an interview with me the other day because I said borrowed wisdom and he said curated and I was like, yeah, that sounds better. That's nice. That's nice. But she's in here and she was just, you know, I watched her work. I'm, I'm so glad I grew up when I did, because if you were a doctor's child now, I doubt very much whether you whether you get to go on visits with your with your mum. Yes, yeah, probably um, not, not licensed in the same probably way. Frowned upon. <laughs> yeah. Whereas I was. I went on visits. We, we had this kind of diarrhea-colored Datsun and station wagon. And we, we would get to patients' houses, and I would be sat down in the living rooms with these distraught families while she did medical stuff with whoever was upstairs in bed. And you just got a sense of what pain is like for people. You got a, se- a sense of the kind of the thing, the way I described it as a seven-year-old to my mother was the idea that it's like the air is heavy in a room. But I also got to watch my mum make the air light when she came back into that room. Because she never just dealt with the sick person and left. She came into the room. And she talked to these people. And for the only she only had five minutes. These visits are quick. In those five minutes, the people could breathe again, at least for another week. And I just thought that was what made me want to be a psychologist, that right there. Is what made me want to be a because that I thought was the power. The idea that with your words alone you can make someone's world better, even if only temporarily. Brilliant. In terms of the egalitarian stuff, I I've, I've been, you know, I played professional sports. I've I've been incredibly well off and privileged. And I don't understand. I don't understand why people think that the necessary consequence of that is other people's abject destitution. I don't understand why people think the consequence of wealth needs to be your employees peeing into nappies and living in their cars. Mm. I don't understand that. Do you think your good fortune has actually
0: helped you? I mean, there's there's you know there's a common argument, isn't there? It's normally an argument that historians use that say, you know, that the one of the one of the ways in which societies become more generous, mm. more inclined to alleviate suffering is when Material conditions for some people improve because once you experience good material conditions, you sort of want that good fortune for other people, or lots of people do. So, do you think your good fortune has helped you in that way? Because I mean, you, you've said a couple of times, in spite of the fact that you know I've got this material success, or in spite of all this, well, I still feel this, and I think, well, maybe it's because of you
1: know, if you've got comfort yourself, you want comfort for others. No, I mean, most of the data, most of the data that I've ever read talks about wealth be, uh, uh, diminishing empathy. And I don't have it to hand, but it, it was a, my colleagues and I, because we're nerds, once a week we tend to sit around and talk about a piece of research or talk about something that we thought was interesting and see if there is any backing to it. And that was one of the things a couple of weeks ago that we were talking about this idea that wealth, um, you know, somebody brought in a paper that was talking about wealth and empathy and how it seems to diminish it. I would have a tendency to believe that wealth simply exacerbates your traits. If you're if you're an asshole, then wealth is going to exacerbate your arseholery That's what's going to happen. My ability to influence other people is much greater. I can make a phone call right now and if there's too much noise in the courtyard in front of me, somebody will go out there and make it stop. I can, that's so obviously being privileged in num- a number of different ways allows facilitates for my impulses, good and bad. But I never I, I don't lose sight. I'm going to go on holiday with no guilt not because of who I am, but it's just, I can still compartmentalize the fact that I have worked very hard to achieve what I've got in two different fields from the idea that that, what we can never forget is that there is someone else more talented than me who has not had the opportunity. Mm. There is somebody else out there with a better brain than mine to write a better book than The Promises of Giants who will never be competition for me because they weren't breastfed when they were young, because they lived in a postcode where their first school wasn't great, because they worried about food insecurity most of their childhood, because my mum my and dad split up quite acrimoniously too, but because that happened and their mum wasn't a Jedi. All of those things will come together to mean that their brilliant book will never be read. And that's chastening. It should be for every successful person who thinks, oh, well, it's no, it's just I'm awesome. Bollocks so that is very important to you. You're aware of
0: the role of those contingencies in your own lives and in every life.
1: I had a mother who, when she, when she looked at you, it was like the sun shining in your entire world. There are no words to describe the advantage that that has given me. No words. Other people's mums are great. I know they are. Not everybody else's mum is that. Not everybody has a bunch of. I had, growing up, I had so many women in my life who were called Auntie, Auntie Nell, Auntie Irene, and on and on and on. And these were just random people who were friends of my mum who realized because she was rarely in or was at work and I wasn't doing, who just were there. Not everybody has that support system. Call it luck, call it my mother's amazingness, whatever it was. But you just, I just, I never understand people who lose sight of the fact that however brilliant you are, there are other people who are just as brilliant who are struggling right now. And they're the people you're talking about when you say, why don't they pick themselves up by their bootstraps? Ugh, disgusting phrases.
0: I think that. Some, one of the things that you've mentioned a couple of times now it seems to be a recurrent theme um, in your upbringing, in, in in the work of your mother, and in your own work is the power of language. You've you, those almost you were sort of almost imbuing words with a type of magic uh, when you were uh, talking about them earlier. Is that something that you very strongly believe in? I mean, it occurs to me that both in psychology mm-hmm. but also in leadership. Um, in you know the sort of talking that you do and the advocacy work that you do, um, there's something there at, at the core of your convictions about the power of
1: language. That's it right there, and that's it. So that's the thing that I'm really aware of. It isn't just about the language, because you and I both know that we can talk about immensely articulate people whose words do not contain the magic that you might imagine It is about words thoughtfully and purposefully used, authentically delivered with a distinct um, pro-social purpose in mind. Um, You know, this is why, (laughs) I mean, this is why people talk about spells when, when, you know, in the Middle Ages, that ability, because people recognize that you could listen to it. Asimov has this amazing scene. I don't know which of the books it is because I haven't read them in years, but one of his books is this amazing, towards the end of the book, this scene where one of the robots uh, whispers it's dying because it has contravened one of the laws in order to do the greater good. And it whispers a set of words, and the robot that's listening to it talked about the fact that it could feel in its mind it's programming changing because of the words that were being delivered and that's what you can do that's what you can do with your words if they are thoughtfully put together and if every time you talk you realize the impact that you might have that's that's when they're amazing that's when they're magic
0: I found a lot of um, your videos online as I've been looking at them recently in in, in past months. And we spoke before we came on about the one um, about white privilege, which I've shown to a lot of people um, Mm -hmm. and have seen the sort of light bulb moment uh, when something that was a a scary concept, a threatening concept, a a phrase that um, undermined their sense of self and put them on, you know, fight and flight sort of mode seen them relax into it and think, oh, I see now You know uh, what this is uh, about. And that's the sort of thing you're talking about, I suppose, when you're talking about words, the power of words, but also they're having a, a purpose, a social purpose and a deliberate purpose. That's something that you really believe in for, for,
1: your, for yourself. Is that part of your personal mission? What's the point in being a giant if you, if you aren't doing something of real value? I have the ability, I have a voice where I can call people up and it's not automatic, but I can call people up and I can be on national television or on the radio to talk about something important. Why? With that power to do nothing but self-aggrandize. And that happens in the process, right? I mean, people are, that will happen. People might hear me and want to buy the book and that's fantastic. I, I love for that to happen. But what's the point? Uh, you know, I my job is to Um, be the heat shield for people who are under assault unnecessarily because I can take it. My job is to (laughs) tweak the noses of, of bullies, wherever they may be, because I'm the guy who you're starting something and then I stand up and you realize that you started it in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's my job. And obviously, it's rarely in a physical context. It would be, but metaphorically speaking, that's my job. Has mm. that given your that 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 has given you a sense
0: of purpose? Is that the, the purpose of your life right now?
1: <laughs> my purpose is to enhance thriving. That's human thriving. My my job is to especially in the workplace, APS Intelligence, our job is to help workplaces enable their people to thrive through disruption. And that doesn't mean snowflake stuff. It means to help leaders challenge and support their people in equal measure, promise to stretch them beyond what they thought they were possible or capable of, but never break them. To promise to look at people, no matter their similarity or dissimilarity, with the same view of their potential and promise, and all of this—not just in order to be nice, which is a word that I hate—and you'll read that in the book if you if you do. i look forward to it. Is it is in order to thrive and win? Because that's what I'm about. I want to win, but I do think there's this weird, toxic, zero-sum game where in order for me to win, someone else must die. And you reject that idea. You reject that idea completely. Yeah. yeah. You know, right now, we're, we're off in August. It's not because we had no work to do. It's because we looked, as an ex not just me, we looked in as a, an ex and we're like, every single one of us is burned out. We looked mm. at our team, and we realized that the work they're doing, it wounds them. And there's nothing we can do about that. You know, when you have purposeful, meaningful, thoughtful interactions with other people, there will be times when that vulnerability can cause you harm. Psychologists know this. It's why we debrief. It's why we are really judicious about. But I know that when we come back from this break, my team is going to be driven and ready to go, because this is the contract we have. I stretch them. My team. We stretch each other to do more than we thought possible but we never break each other. And we, we, we are proactive before people look like they're going to burn out because I'd rather have someone for the next 10 years than the next three months. It's about long-term winning this. It's not, it's not soft and, and fuzzy stuff.
0: Leadership, congruence, opportunity, words authentically delivered for social good, human thriving and human development. Thank you, John, for telling us what you believe. Thank you. That was John Amici telling us about his life and his outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanists UK and this was the second episode of the fourth season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about humanism, Humanist UK or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider joining as a supporter or a member. You can also, to find out more about humanism, purchase the Sunday Times bestselling The Little Book of Humanism, available now at all good bookshops.